0: Welcome to the Stanford University Women in Data Science podcast, where we interview women from across the field to hear their perspective on the past, present, and the future of data science. This podcast supports the efforts of our annual WITS technical conference, the Women in Data Science One Day Conference, that we have every springtime. We designed that to educate and inspire current and future data scientists from around the world. Welcome to the Women in Data Science podcast series. I'm your host, Margot Garrison. And today I have the great pleasure to talk to Jennifer Witham. She is the Frederick Emmons Thurman Dean of the School of Engineering and the Fletcher-Jones Professor in Computer Science and Electrical Engineering at Stanford University. Before starting a deanship last year, she served as Computer Science Department Chair from 2009 to 2014 and the School of Engineering Senior Associate Dean from 2014 to 2016. Jennifer received her bachelor's degree from the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music in 1982, and her PhD in Computer Science from Cornell University in 1987. Jennifer is a world expert in data management and database design, and is published very widely. Apart from her deep contributions to research, Jennifer is also a fantastic educator. She's the co-author of four textbooks, and she launched one of the very first MOOC courses. And the MOOC course is a massive open online course. Her course was titled Introduction to Databases and enrolled over 100,000 students. Just before Jennifer became Dean, she began her Instructional Odyssey, which happened during her sabbatical, and she traveled all around the world to teach short courses in data science and more. Jennifer's Odyssey will continue during the summer and fall with planned stops in the Philippines, Bhutan, Ghana, and India. So Jennifer, it's such an amazing career and so many different activities that you've been part of. Thanks so much for joining us here this morning. Thank you for having me. One of the interesting things, of course, that everybody always talks about with you is that you started in music and you ended up as a dean of the School of Engineering. So how did that happen?
1: Well, I was a undergraduate in trumpet performance, so probably not too many other engineering deans have a bachelor's degree in um, orchestral trumpet performance. Late in my undergraduate years, I took a class called uh, Computer Applications in Music Research, and I took it just as one of the music electives that I, I needed to take. I was in a conservatory setting, so I didn't have to take much outside of music, but that gave me a little glimpse at computer programming which I had no exposure to before that class. But it got my interest peaked a bit, and I took a couple more computer science classes and a little bit of math, got on a roll, and ended up deciding to go to graduate school in computer science instead of trying to audition to enter a symphony orchestra as a trumpet player.
0: So do do the fields have anything to do with each other? You know, how has music inspired your computer science or vice versa?
1: Many people suggest that there's a correlation between people who are musically inclined and people who are, say, mathematically or logically inclined. And I do believe there's a correlation there. Um, Correlation and causation, of course, are two different things, as we know. Uh, I have not particularly combined those, um, my skills in music and my uh, interest in logic and math and computer science, uh, though many people do. And again, you know, I, th- I think there is a correlation in the way people think and what they choose to do. Um, and then, of course, there is a very important field of
0: computer music. Uh, I just haven't happened to pursue that myself. So you, you finished your PhD in 1987. So that means that you've been in this field for 30 years. Now and lots has changed in that time. You know what has been the most significant change that you've seen in computer science over these last three decades?
1: Well, it's interesting because I actually think my particular field, which started out as uh, sort of vanilla databases and then now is known as data science or big data, hasn't changed as much as as you would imagine. Um, basic. Databases uh, are one of the most enduring technologies, I would say, in software. And so I think that's partly why, for example, my MOOC, which is now seven years old, is still fairly modern. So some areas of computer science have been very enduring. Other areas have changed uh, a lot. So, certainly because of advances in hardware, for example, graphics, uh, um, you know. Uh, video and so on, have all made huge advances. I think another obvious change is the huge interest from students in computer science now. That's been a change over the last few years that's been dramatic, so whereas computer science used to be for uh, sort of a niche for nerdy type people, uh, or at least was thought to be that at some point. The truth is it's a really accessible and popular field now. We have a really uh, nice, diverse group of people who choose to go into computer science. Uh, Maybe that's partly because computer science has also become much more broadly used, broadly applicable across all fields. And so instead of it just being sort of the narrow study of software and hardware, it's now a lot about what you can use that software hard- and hardware for in other fields. And of course, the recent uh, explosion of interest in machine learning has been huge as well.
0: Yeah, and, and of course, also artificial intelligence now. Yes, well, that that is right. What have you found the most exciting developments in computer science? during your tenure here at Stanford?
1: Well, again, I would say I'm, I'm going to go on two, two sides. I think one of them that's been very exciting for me, and I'm just going to repeat myself, is the diversity of students who, and and faculty, for that matter, who are interested in, in pursuing computer science. Again, for me, it's been so gratifying to see it move from a kind of niche narrowly defined field to something that's really blossomed in both the people who are pursuing it and in how it's influencing other parts of the university and society as a whole. So I think for the last few years, we've seen the incredible explosion of interest in artificial intelligence. And that's been, you know, the, the trigger for that was actually advances in hardware and collection of data that suddenly made it possible to do tremendous things with, with machine learning and build AI systems. And I think that when we look back in another 10 or 20 years, that's going to have been a major inflection point that's happening just around now. But time will tell on that one. I, I think the the jury is still out to some extent.
0: You talked about um, increased diversity as one of the exciting things that has happened. Uh, uh, in the last years, and one of the things that excites me very much is the increased percentage of women that are entering uh, computer science. We've certainly seen that at Stanford; that's that's been phenomenal. So it's wonderful that the number of students has grown so much. But when you look in industry, the percentage of women is still relatively low. What do you do? You have hopes for the future there?
1: I I do have hopes for the future there. Uh, I you know people are studying why some years post graduation women tend to head their Careers often in different directions, while men seem more likely to just stay as straight-line software engineers. Uh, I think that increasingly the jobs in industry will be broader, actually, and so there that will still need straight-line software engineers, but there will be more jobs for people who have additional skills and interests, I would say, while also having that base. So I am hopeful that as industry develops, we will see more women sticking
0: with it. I hope so, too. I think that would be wonderful. Now, let's talk a bit about your instructional odyssey. Um, you know, that's one of the things I just loved about uh, uh, your career that, that you did this. I remember you stepping down as senior associate dean and saying, I'm going travel and and I'm going to teach people all over the world. Uh, and you did, and I followed your uh, your blog on this odyssey. What inspired you to do this?
1: Well, I think it was a, a combination of things. Um, first of all, the experience of teaching the MOOC, it wasn't actually called a MOOC when I did it back in 2011, but of teaching a massive a, a course that reached many people was for me one of the most uh, invigorating and exciting things I think I've done in my whole career. Uh, At that time, there were just three courses that were put online, um, uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and my database class. And the excitement, enthusiasm, and gratitude of those thousands of students all over the world inspired me to put everything into it. So I spent that few months. That was all I thought about. And I just really loved reaching people all over the world and seeing how much it meant to them. Uh, to have this level of course accessible and free to them. So I love that. I also have always loved travel. And when my sabbatical came along, I think the third component is that I decided I wanted to do something. I I didn't want to just go to another university and work in a research group uh, or write a book. I wanted to do something that had real impact on people. And I thought about working you know, at a nonprofit or a foundation for my sabbatical, but then just sort of out of the blue, I had this idea. I think, based on my experience with the MOOC and travel, that I, the, the way I could best influence people directly would be to show up and teach them. Just like I was teaching them online, I could show up and teach them in person, which, of course, is a, is a different experience. And so those things coming together, plus a little creativity around some funding and uh, knowing how to plan travel and having a few contacts, it came together. It was, I would say, fairly unusual uh, enterprise, but it
0: worked. You went to some unusual places, you know, when people think about maybe going to teach somewhere else, you know, they may not think about going to places like Bhutan or places in Africa that I know you've been or, or in, the, in the Far East. Yep. What made you choose these far out places?
1: Well, I had some fairly um, well-defined criteria for the places I chose to go. And one of them was that they don't often get visitors like me. So they don't see people from top international universities very often. And so that already, you know, leads to some of the more unusual places. There were a couple other things, though. They needed to speak English Uh, well enough because I decided specifically that I was not going to try to teach through a translator and then my third criterion was that I would have a uh, you know a really proactive organized host for each visit because there was a lot of organization around those visits and so with those criteria Um, I ended up exploring a bunch of options and ended up with a sort of interesting group of countries that I visited.
0: It seems that uh, most of your visits or maybe all of your visits were extremely inspirational and you were welcomed with open arms. I remember seeing a photo of you arriving at the airport with a huge banner welcoming you to the country, (laughs) but I can't remember where that was. I
1: think that was Indonesia and it actually wasn't at the airport, it was along the highway. It was quite something um, to see a large billboard with my face on it on a highway in Indonesia.
0: So what has been the impact of this Odyssey on you and, and and also on others you know the ones that you've that you've taught? are you keeping in touch with
1: with people? So I do keep in touch with with some of the people. Um, the impact on me is you know in part it's just very gratifying for me to, um, to see and meet and teach these people. And so I'd say for me, that's probably the main thing. I also learned how to teach material in a fairly configurable fashion. And it's just very interesting how different cultures and different groups of people with different preparation respond to the material. So it got to the point where I could start to get, I know to to get a sense for the audience and then adjust as I went based on that audience and the variety both within an audience and from the different audiences was was huge, yet I was able to customize the, the material for them kind of on the spot. And so that's something I really learned to do, something I haven't had to do here at Stanford, because when I teach Stanford classes, it's, you know, more or less the same audience each time I teach. So there's not as much need to adapt.
0: What was the most surprising cultural difference that you experienced?
1: Well, One thing that was very common, its I don't know if it's surprising, but many of the places that I went Their culture is a huge divide between the instructor and the students or the professor and the students. So many places I had to work hard to get them to understand they were allowed to talk to me during the breaks, for example. Um, and so that, that was quite interesting. There were some, a small number of places where that wasn't the case and they did seem comfortable, but in many places uh, there's just an expectation that you don't talk to the professor. And for me, I wanted to get over that because I wanted to talk to the students. I wasn't just there to stand up in front of the classroom.
0: Now, I, I assume that uh, apart from teaching them content, you also talk to them about possible careers in, in computer science and data science. What, what sort of advice would you give students that come to those classes or right. maybe even here? Well, so
1: uh, and when I was traveling, it was a little bit sad because many of them would love to come to the U.S. to study. Um, and most many of them were quite capable, but none of them had the financial means to do that. And the way we're set up in the US when we admit people from other countries to our masters programs, we usually don't offer them support. And so their only hope would be to find support somewhere to and so that's was what I advised them. When I sensed they were strong enough, I said you really need to beat the bushes and find support to get to, you know, for a year to get to a university and then maybe see how things can go from there. So that was one piece of advice because they were sort of thinking they might be able to apply to a university and and get the university to support them. And that just isn't generally the case for international master's students. Um, The other thing I did is very much encourage them to take online courses Um, And I, in fact, tried to encourage many of the universities I visited to incorporate online courses into their curriculum, and that's a leap for some of these universities. They're not always ready to do that, which is unfortunate because they don't have the faculty to teach all these topics, and there's these great online courses now. And so, if they could somehow incorporate them officially into their curriculum, I think it could improve the curriculum for the students
0: quite a lot. So, Jennifer, you talked about the uh, the increased interest in computer science, and of course, here at Stanford, we've seen many more students entering computer science over the last years than ever before. And you're right smack in the middle of that that shift. And as a dean, you have a really interesting perspective because you're not just looking at the school of engineering, but you're working uh, campus wide. What impact has this had on, on, on at the university? What, what what do you see as the the benefits, the challenges, and and what do you do as dean in in this uh, changing world?
1: So. We have seen a huge shift into computer science to the point that nearly 20% of Stanford students are majoring in computer science. And one of the challenges is simply getting those students taught. Uh, that's a, a logistical challenge, but we're, we don't have enough faculty to cover all of our courses. We let our courses grow to gigantic sizes. So that's a, a logistical issue that we deal with. We worry about burnout in the computer science department. Uh, We worry about the fire marshal coming to classrooms when they're overflowing in size and that type of thing. But I think we also need to think about what these students are really looking for when they're majoring in computer science. And maybe this comes back to what I talked about, where computer science used to be a sort of more narrow niche field, where now computer science is permeating so many other fields. Are the students who are coming coming to computer science because they want to learn just the computer science or are they coming because they want to apply computer science to their other interests? And I'm gonna venture a guess that the second is true for a lot of those students and I'm not convinced our program is catering best right now to those students. So if I had to wave a magic wand in terms of curriculum, I would modify or um, add to our computer science major a way to really do the computer science as well as apply it in other areas. And we are exploring those things, but waving a magic wand is not how you change curriculum at Stanford. Uh, It's a long and involved process involving the departments, the faculty senate. Uh, Universities move fairly slowly. That's something I've learned as dean. Uh, but But I believe the future for these students, for many of these students, is not pure computer science, but computer science or data science or AI Coupled with other areas of interest.
0: Where do you think would be the most exciting interdisciplinary field involving computer science and some other field? Would you say that's in medicine, which is you know where, where data science is really penetrating very quickly right, with personalized healthcare? And-
1: yeah, I, the highest impact on I would say the nearest term highest impact on humanity is in health. No question about it. But I think there's other very important issues. Um, Sustainability, for example, is going to involve a lot of data science also. Um, So I think that's another large societal impact. We have data scientists here working on understanding poverty patterns, for example. So that can also have an impact on society. So I think there's going to be some pretty big impacts on society, as well as on discovery across the university. But again, I would put health as number one.
0: So if you were an incoming Stanford student now, what would you study?
1: Well, if we had a data science major, maybe I would study data science. We don't quite have one yet.
0: Or maybe CS plus music.
1: (laughs) That would be a possibility also.
0: Well, thanks so much, Jennifer, for coming today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. My pleasure. That concludes this episode of the Women in Data Science podcast. Join us next time for another insightful discussion. And thanks so much for listening. To find out more about this podcast series or other women in data science initiatives at Stanford, visit us at witsconference.org, W-I-D-S